Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Those are verses 9 to 12 of Psalm 143, which along with Psalm 141 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, October the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Micah, and I'm going to remind you that he is prophesying at the same time as um, Hosea and Isaiah, and and so it's sort of the end of the northern kingdom, it's towards the end of the northern kingdom, and the sort of the beginning of the end of the southern kingdom. He's primarily prophesying to those in Jerusalem, which is the southern kingdom. So then we have also the gospel according to Luke, chapter 8, 1 to 15, and then the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24, verse 24, through verse chapter 25, verse 12. So in the Micah... Um, prophecy remember what it, what has happened so far he has criticized the leaders in Jerusalem of of injustice towards the people and, and and any lack of concern actually for the people who are under their leadership so and he has pronounced that those leaders will themselves ultimately lack anyone to lay claim to the any portion of the land when the Lord returns that land to them. He's already prophesied about the coming Messiah, the breaker of the breach, the one who goes before. So now he says, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. So he's saying they're not even prophets. They're practicing divination. And there's two basic measures of that is one is they're prophesying lies. So they're getting their information to the extent that they're getting it from anywhere other than their own spirit. They're getting it from an illicit source. And prophets don't prophesy for money. So you got these two things. He says they're practicing divination. In other words, the information that they get and give is not from the Lord. And second, they do it for money. So all these things, the heads give judgment for a bribe, priests teach for a price, prophets practice divination for money, has to do with simply greed and not for truth. So there's a passion for greed, there's a passion for money, but there's no passion for truth in any of the leaders, the priests, or the prophets. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, isn't the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. You know, that, that, that could be said of America today that, that there's a certain group of Christians who, who are proclaiming, um, no, we're not under judgment. These are all good things that we're doing in society today. And, and so the Lord's with us. The Lord's with us to the extent that they acknowledge him at all. But but the reality is, is that we as Christians need to see things for the way they are. We need to see God being pushed not just to the margins, but pushed completely out of, of society. And so if you bring anything that sounds remotely like a religious argument or any appeal to God or a moral law or anything like that, then, then you have a problem because you're in the wrong. You obviously believe nonsense. If you can't believe and bring a reasoned objection completely divorced from a religious one, and they can determine anything to be religious, then, then you're not even 
given a place to hear in the public square, in spite of the fact that so much of what we hear is absolute nonsense in a postmodern, post-truth, deconstructed world. They're not bringing rational arguments. They're bringing emotional arguments that they attempt to support with bizarre claims. Anyway, (laughs) therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So in other words, Jerusalem is going to be utterly destroyed. Even though you're saying, oh, the Lord's with us, everything's good, everything's good, you're not seeing the truth. You're not seeing anything from the Lord's perspective about sin and its corruptive and corrosive influence on society. He said, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. So God God is saying through the prophet that ultimately, even though this judgment is going to come on Jerusalem in the latter days— when this breach breaker comes, then then everything will be restored. I mean, it, it's got to be, right? If, if Israel is God's covenant nation, and a covenant is an everlasting and irrevocable thing, then ultimately we know this will happen, and we know it from the book of the Revelation. But God has a covenant with his people, and therefore it we know with certainty in the latter days, these things will be. The uncertainty comes in, when are those latter days? And so that's the big issue, because we know the truth, because God has that everlasting and irrevocable covenant with his people. So ultimately, this will be true. And and so Micah is, is announcing judgment, but then also announcing God will keep his covenant. He shall judge between, but, but it's not just, I'm sorry, he, he will, it will not just be with his people because of what he has done, then people will stream there to know him because they will see him as king and Lord. <clears throat> For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. He'll be the final arbiter of these disputes doesn't matter whether they're in Jerusalem or not. God will ultimately decide these disputes. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither shall nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more war anymore. But they shall set each man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. What a beatific and blessed time that is. There's no war on the earth. Everything is restored. And Isaiah talks about these same kinds of, of restorations, where he talks about a weaned child playing over the hole of the adder, the lime laying down with the lamb, all those things that speak of a peaceful kingdom of God. But, but they're established. This kingdom is established primarily through our proclamation and by the work of the Holy Spirit in this. If we don't proclaim then we are failing to do the mission that we're given to do. We need to proclaim truth. We need to be people who are unafraid to proclaim truth because we know who ultimately is authority over all that we do. And so we're playing for that audience of one always. For the mouth of the Lord of the host has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So he sees the truth, and that is is that, that 
people walk in the name of their own God. And he says, we, and who is he referring to there? It has to be just the remnant. It can't be those people who he has roundly condemned earlier in this prophecy. In the gospel, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So there's two different things there, right? There's a proclamation and there's a bringing. The proclamation is the verbal proclamation. The bringing is the healing work that Jesus did. So the kingdom is, it has come into your midst, and all things are being renewed and restored. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. So now we get a, a sense of where the financial support comes from to enable them to go about doing this ministry, because remember, all these guys walked away from their job. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and he sowed. Some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. For others, they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, which is exactly what God's charge to multiple prophets, including Ezekiel and Isaiah, were. And that is to say, you're going to speak and you're going to do, but but these people are not going to hear, nor are they going to see. They're not going to understand. They would hear what you say, but they won't understand it. The people in Micah's day rejected him. Jesus tells us that in Jerusalem they always reject the prophets, and we can see it again and again in the lives of the prophets. Look at Jeremiah's life. Spent time in a cistern. Look at Ezekiel. Spent so much time on one side or the other, and yet nobody cared, and and nothing came of, it seems, the prophecy that he was giving. And so it's that Jesus is saying, it's the same in this day. I'm saying these things, and I'm doing these things, and yet no one is seeing truly, nor are they understanding. So he goes on to describe and, and, and uh, reinforce the meaning of the parable, which we've looked at multiple times. It comes up often in our gospel readings. The parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The one along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. Those who have no root, they believe for a while, in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they're those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit doesn't mature. As for those in the good soil, they're those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And that, that last part is something we really need to be cognizant of. We need to understand that we have to, to have patience in waiting for the fruit. I mean, right earlier this year. So in about um, May, June, somewhere in there, maybe May this year, um, I have a fig tree. It's a very large fig tree. In fact, it's about 12 feet tall. Um, but, but I have this fig tree that will give me thousands, literally more than a thousand uh, figs will come off this tree. Well, the fruit appears really early, 
but I can't harvest it for another 90 days. And every day when I get out of the car, because it's right by the garage, every day when I get out of the car, I look and I look at my fig tree and I go and I, and I touch the figs to see if any of them are ripe yet. But they're not even close during that period of time. And, and then suddenly they're ripe. But, but it takes a lot of patience for me to, to deal with that because you see the fruit, but it doesn't mature until a long period of time. And so we need to be careful about measuring fruit as well. I know a lot of churches measure fruit by measuring the number of baptisms they might do in any given year. And I, and I you know, I know that for a fact. So, but, but what are we doing when we're baptizing somebody? We're beginning to harvest fruit, but the fruit has to mature. And so that's discipleship. That's teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, just as he said in the Great Commission. So it, it, it's important that, that we get our heads around what we need to be measuring. And, and the thing that we need to do it, it, with this with patience thing, he says, just sort of sow the seed indiscriminately. Wherever you're going about your way, sow the seed. God can do any work that he needs to do in changing the soil and the condition and the quality of the soil. Just persevere. And don't lose heart when you don't see fruit right away. Continue to do the work of sowing. In the uh, Acts lesson today, remember he's, Paul has been before Felix down in Caesarea where he was being tried for disturbing the peace, essentially. Um, so now, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, and I've explained to you who Felix and Drusilla are. Go back a couple of days um, to uh, to Wednesdays. Um, podcast, and you'll hear that at the end of that podcast, last, say, six, seven minutes, something like that. So he came with his wife, Drusilla, so, who was Jewish. Well, yeah, she was Jewish, but but she was uh, she wouldn't have been allowed to be in the temple because she divorced her husband, and women couldn't divorce their husbands. The husbands could divorce the wife, but wives couldn't divorce the husband. And now she's married to a Gentile, Felix. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And I've told you, Felix is a, was a corrupt guy. They ended up having to kick him out and get rid of him because he, he stirred up so much trouble there. So he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. What's this deal with self-control? Well, Felix um, saw Drusilla while she was still married, and convinced a, a Samaritan magician named Simon to go, not, not Simon Magus, but convinced him to go and convince her that the right thing to do was to marry him. And so he had no self-control because he took a, a woman who was already someone else's wife as his own. This thing about righteousness would have to do with the same thing, and certainly it would be a word against um, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. And the coming judgment. I mean, Paul is is bold here to stand before these this governor, and stand before him and and preach about sin and judgment, and specifically sin and judgment with relation to Felix and Drusilla themselves. Felix was alarmed. He got it. In other words, I mean, Jesus tells a parable. People are like, I don't know what that means. Paul speaks this word here, and Felix knows. He was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He's looking for a bribe. Really? That What about Paul's message to you sounded like he was a man who would give a bribe to get his freedom? So he sent him for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, there's very little 
to know about Porcius Festus. There's only one mention outside of the scriptures, and that's in the the, um, Jewish historian Josephus mentions him very briefly. There's very little to be known about Festus. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Ad and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Two years have gone by, and they're still hot to prosecute Paul. They can't let this go. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush him, to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he denied their request to, to change the venue of the trial to Jerusalem, and there, there, there could be good reason for that. So what you've heard probably along the way somewhere is, is that the Pope is infallible. Well, that's not a Roman Catholic belief. It's not. It, it's very conditional. It's when he speaks in a certain way and gives a certain kind of an opinion. It's when he speaks ex cathedra, which is from the throne. That's what ex cathedra means, from the throne. So when he speaks in that capacity, then they consider him to be infallible, which would mean that it can't be contravened. He's speaking as though he were God himself. And so here, that, that's exactly the idea and the reason that this trial needs to take place in Caesarea, because he's not in Jerusalem, is not a judgment place in this kind of way. He's accused of breaking Roman law. So, so what we need is we need a civil trial, and for that civil trial to be true and effective, then it has to take place in, in Caesarea, where Festus will sit on the judgment seat, the bema, the seat of from which he can proclaim judgment. Otherwise, it's not valid. So so he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. And then he went down to Caesarea, which is where the seat of judgment was. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal. That's the seat I'm talking about. It's the bema. And ordered Paul to be brought. So he's acting now in in an official capacity. So when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they couldn't prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. I'm innocent. And and he was. (laughs) He was not in the temple with Greeks. He didn't do any of the things that they tried to say that he did. They continued to say that he was a disturber of the peace, which was a great crime in Rome because you don't want to disrupt the Pax Romana. That was one of the most important principles of Roman rule, is it's orderly. And so Paul could be accused of breaking the order of places where he had been, but it was never Paul's fault. It was it was the reaction of the people that brought unrest. It was the Jews themselves in many cases, but in Ephesus it was the, the silversmiths who did it. I'm sorry, that was just too funny. So, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? I'm sure Paul's looking at him and thinking, Have you lost your mind? Really? You think I want to go to Jerusalem? Do you understand even why I'm in Caesarea? They were going to kill me in Jerusalem. And I had to be secreted down here under guard, heavy guard, in order to come here. I'm not going back to Jerusalem. You're out of your mind. Because he knows what's going to happen there. He knows that, that he'll get the same kind of justice that Jesus did, which is to say kangaroo court justice, period, end of sentence. So Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, which is where he is, 
because the, the governor represents Caesar, and this is the tribunal in Caesarea where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. He says, look, if I've done anything that, that deserves the death penalty, well, I'm not trying to talk my way out of that. I'm not trying to get out of it. If I've done that, then let the punishment fall on me. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. In other words, he says, I'm going over your head. You could have given justice today, but you chose not to. You chose to avoid making the ruling on this, and so I don't trust you either here or in Jerusalem any longer. No, I appeal to Caesar. I want a higher thing. He knows two things, right? One is he's going to get kangaroo court justice in Jerusalem, but he also knows that when he was in Jerusalem, God told him he was going to take him to Rome. So Paul sees the opening. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going over your head. You didn't do this. It's essentially he's appealing to the Supreme Court. So he's got to now go before the Supreme Court. He has taken Festus out of the mix. He's no longer going to be able to make any judgment in this case at all because he's made his appeal as a Roman citizen to Caesar. So then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, declared, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So Paul's willing not to submit himself to the—he's to the, he, willing to choose the authority to which he's willing to submit. He's not willing to submit to Festus. Felix, for whatever reason, delayed judgment against him. He, he, he chose not to exercise his authority because he wanted something rather than to have to do the work of exercising the authority that had been granted to him. He knew that if he, he declared Paul innocent, then there, there was going to be hell to pay from the Jews. And so he, he avoided making any judgment at all, and Festus here just is trying to appease the Jews, and Paul sees through it. He says, this is what you're trying to do, so I'm going to appeal to an authority that's greater than you. But he's not really appealing to Caesar because he said God was going to take him to Rome, so he's going under God's authority to Rome. No matter what temporal authority is exercising power over him, Paul knows that he's ultimately only under the divine sovereignty and the divine authority. And, and that's the thing that we need to always keep in mind is, is that no matter what powers are over us, we need to act towards them and react towards them in certain kinds of ways as Christians. But ultimately, we need to have no fear of those authorities because ultimately God is the arbiter and judge over us.